Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to examine how science curriculum for female identifying students can go beyond cliched ideas in order to facilitate an informed exploration of their world. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Christine Primomo from Lake Washington Girls School in Seattle, Washington. Before I introduce my amazing guest, I wanted to share some exciting news with you all. Lesson Impossible made it onto the Canadian iTunes Education Podcast Chart. This is thanks to you, my incredible listeners, and I can't thank you enough for listening and sharing the podcast. This is important because not only does it give me the encouragement to keep going, it means that more people are given the chance to discover Lesson Impossible. No one is sure exactly how podcasts get onto the iTunes charts, but it seems to involve a combination of listener numbers, rating, and reviews. If you have a moment, it would be great if you could either click on the stars or write a quick one-sentence review. So thank you all again, and now on to the show. I was introduced to Christine through Louis Mayday Travis, my guest for episode six, where we discussed ways to make science more inclusive. He recommended Christine as a great fit for Lesson Impossible's mission, an innovative teacher willing to share her highs and lows. Christine teaches at Lake Washington Girls School, a private middle school, which, according to their website, admits students who identify as female regardless of their biological sex. I was invited to their brand spanking new location in South Seattle, where I got a tour of the collaborative spaces, new technology, and my favorite, the lockers with the names of inspiring women on them. Christine had an impressive science lab to teach in, though it was still in the process of being set up, and we were visited a few times by maintenance workers checking on the HVAC system, which you may hear in the background going on and off throughout the episode. This was an incredibly hard episode to find a title for, since we discuss all sorts of things, from Christine's winding path to teaching, what changes when it's only girls in the classroom, the long journey to developing a unit that feels right, how middle school can be a challenging time, and why self-care is incredibly important for teachers. But eventually, I settled on science for girls, with the question mark, because really, as we discuss, is there a difference when teaching girls, especially with science? I'll leave you to make your own decision. My first question for Christine Primomo was what led her to become a middle school science teacher? My path to teaching started in college when I signed up to volunteer with the science bus, which was me driving in my car to a local elementary school and bringing a science experiment, one hour like little tinkering activities, and that was really hard (laughs) and also incredibly fun and rewarding when I could see the same kids. I would go about once a month. Mm -hmm. I went off and worked at an environmental nonprofit in DC because I was like, I'm going to take my environmental science and like use it in public policy. And it just crushed my soul. (laughs) Like I would just cry. Also, Washington DC is rough when you're from like the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) Realizing that Washington wasn't for her, Christine worked in Austin, Texas with AmeriCorps, teaching after school through a 4-H club, and then decided to move home where she worked at a boys and girls club. Eventually, she found herself at Islandwood, which has an outdoor education facility on beautiful Bainbridge Island in Washington. 
And so it was a year teaching outside with kids at Islandwood and taking classes with professors, and then a year at University of Washington in the College of Education, getting my master's in curriculum and instruction. So I love the idea that you worked with the kids first. When I was doing my education degree, it was the opposite. Mm-hmm. And we'd be just talking about all this theory and be like, well, in my two weeks experience of being in the classroom, I think this... So like, that's a great model. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially like working in after school is like kid boot camp, I think, because <laughs> like if you want to get a kid to do something in an after school program, you have to like pull out everything that you can imagine. You're like on the show and then you have candy and then you have like, like don't throw the pool ball. Please don't throw it. But like, I know you're melting down because I'm asking you to do work. You just came from school and you're seven. Like we have to play. Is the theory behind that parents just want their kids to have an edge or there's a feeling that there's just not enough time in the school day where the kids are getting what they need? I, I think a lot of it is wanting to feel like productive with that time. Like how we define productive in our society is, it's pretty narrow. I think that there's a lot of productivity in play. I think that there's a lot of productivity. It, it just, we have to reframe what we're, how we're using this time. Like the kids have been learning all day. Like yeah. let's just take a break. And in Texas, a lot of it was like, we have to hit the standards as many times as we can for the test. Those poor kids, because I think oh my God. adults, yeah. we just forget how cognitively tiring it is to be learning new I know. things. I know. Like, as an adult, I learn so few new things in a day. Right. And then what we expect kids to be able to absorb and then apply. Yeah is while their bodies are changing. Right. It's just incredible. (laughs) Especially in middle school. (laughs) And I have a lot of expectations for them in the day, and that's a good reminder to be like, yeah, your brain is, like, working at 50% (laughs) at best. Yeah. (laughs) So that's a good segue to how would you define your educational Mm. or pedagogical philosophy. Mm -hmm. It's really centered around relationships. It's like so important to be an effective teacher. If I don't know what my students' interests are, what they have going on at home, what their strengths are academically, and then also where they're challenged. If I don't understand that, and if they don't trust me, we won't have an effective learning environment. Also, students need to be learning about things that they can directly connect to their lives. So an example with that is... The energy unit that I'm teaching right now is about hydroelectric power because our state is powered mostly by hydroelectricity. <laughs> and so, like, localizing curriculum and having them, we did a human body system unit where they had to explain the human body systems that are involved in their favorite activity. Mm. And they were like, Dungeons and Dragons. Binge watching Netflix, <laughs> eating japchae. Like it was all over the board, but they could share who they were in the class and and use the curriculum like to explain their own lives. So that is also pretty important to me. So you are teaching in a all girls school in what I think most people would agree is 
not only the most formative, but probably the most difficult emotionally mm-hmm. time of, of a girl's life in grades six, seven, and eight. Yeah. What made you want to be a, a single gendered educational setting? And then how that changes what the classroom looks like. I had a group of all girls at Islandwood for a week, and it was so empowering for me. (laughs) These students were just so excited to be together. And this age group, like every day, you have no idea what is going to happen. In terms of the classroom, it's really hard for me to answer that question because I feel like I'm in the water a little bit. And I also don't know if it's our school culture or just the fact that it's all girls. It's hard to pick that out. But our students are so happy to be learning. I also think that by being in this like classroom community of all girls, there's a lot more of willingness to take risks. Like I think I have a little bit more space to coach how to take a risk. And I and I wonder if that would be true in a single gender setting for boys. Yeah. Like if if by for some kids I think it's pretty important. I also teach human body, so like we're kind of in it. Yeah. But we talk about like all of the things that bodies can do in here in a way that is like totally destigmatized. We have like tampons all over the school and pads and snacks and like whatever you need whenever you like for whatever period and time of your cycle you're in yeah. and um it's pretty beautiful yeah mm-hmm. I had read an article saying that teachers even when they think they're teaching equitably between the genders in a classroom oftentimes will focus and respond more to boys and their comments or mm. interventions and so I had a, a volunteer like visitor coming to observe my class And I said, while you're observing, do you mind just keeping a tally of the number of times that I talk and respond to girls and talk and respond Mm -hmm. to boys? And even though I tried not to, like, obviously... Mess with the data. (laughs) I knew I was being observed, but I, like, kind of kept my usual patterns. And overwhelmingly, I was really focusing on the boys and part of it was behavioral Mm -hmm. because they were acting out in a way that was catching my attention Mm -hmm. and then part of it I think is just perpetuating that culture of you know a strong confident boy raises his hand and I'm like yes what do you have to say here today Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of kids come here in sixth grade and they were the kids who kind of flew under the radar yeah (laughs) because they they didn't you know, have behavioral things going on, or they were kind of like quieter. And here we're like, Oh, I see you. <laughs> you think you're gonna sneak by me? It's yeah. not happening. But nice coping mechanisms. <laughs> like, you work hard on those. That's not gonna work yeah. in here. And, and who would be the profile of student that you're having come here? A lot. I would say 75. I don't know the total numbers, but most kids come from public schools and go back to public schools. And I think that they're kids who want to be in a smaller school setting, want to have relationships with their peers that are supported. We have lunch dates. So three days a week, we assign kids who they're having lunch with. 
Oh, that's a lovely idea. Yeah, which reduces a lot of lunchtime stress. We'll also sometimes have lunch activities and um, to kind of reduce, because middle school is hard, you know, like trying to figure out who you're going to have lunch with. If there's like set groups already can feel really intimidating and anxiety producing. So we kind of give them a little bit of support with that. The research, especially in STEM, talks about these adolescent years as so important um, to building confidence and helping students figure out what their identity is and what their passions are. And especially if it's in science and math or technology engineering, it's right now is when we kind of like feed that fire that can give them, set them on the path to like curing cancer or whatever (laughs) they want to do. I once had a, a teacher in high school and he told me that most girls don't have the math gene. Mm-hmm. So do you find yourself kind of deprogramming messaging that they've already gotten through schooling? I mean, math is a really big one. And then science also, I see that. And, and kids hearing their parents say, I'm just not a math person. Or, yeah, that's, that's not a thing that we do. There's, there's also, like you search girls in STEM it's gotten a lot better but like some when we first started some of our projects based curriculum it would be like hack a hair dryer Jesus (laughs) no joke that was like coming out of some I don't know something as big as the Smithsonian I don't think it was the Smithsonian it was IBM but we were like seriously hack a hair dryer like that is the curriculum that you're writing for girls in STEM yeah why can't we build robots or whatever? And, and so a lot of the materials that we're getting, we'll actually use as teaching props sometimes. Not all the time because we don't talk about like lack of representation or like discrimination explicitly, except for maybe like when we get something totally ridiculous, like a girl playing with a doll on a STEM poster and then like boy in space. And you're like, are you kidding me? Like, okay, it's 2019. How are you getting away with that? I'm even shocked that there's girl resources and boy resources. Like as a language teacher, I would never have expected someone to propose a curricular tool to me mm-hmm. and have it be a girl or a boy grammar exercise mm-hmm. or writing prompt mm-hmm. and the fact that they actually would do that like I understand there was underrepresentation they wanted to mm-hmm. improve but the fact that you would oh I'm just so confused well, right but now. that's also like the world of science there's like heart research and women's heart research huh if if you go to the CDC website on I, I studied I had a gender medical anthropology class and like it's unreal how women are still othered in especially medical fields but it's like that's ridiculous (laughs) like first of all heart disease is like the leading killer in women so the fact that there's heart disease and then women's heart disease also 51% of the population has a woman heart Yeah, so I think that this is a, that clearly we're talking systems, like the big, big level, but um, we definitely see that here. It trickles down. And then for students that you've taught who then move on back to a mixed gender Mm -hmm. education, 
I'm assuming they come back and say hi because oh, they're they do. building relationships. Mm-hmm. How, what was their integration process like? Mm-hmm. From the kids that I've heard from, they're like, boys are annoying. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's real. <laughs> and they don't feel like they have to pull back parts of themselves. No, in fact, one student, she was like... I'm the only girl in the computer science class. So I went to the principal and I was like, you need to fix this. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you get it. <laughs> so I love that example of a kid who was like, why aren't there girls in here? What classes are you offering at the same time? How is the class structured? Like, why am I the only person who felt comfortable to sign up for this? So she, she just went right to the principal. That's a lovely story. Which is so exciting. <laughs> what is a unit or lesson that you are the most proud of? So I write all my curriculum. Um, I use a bunch of different resources, or I co-write with other teachers like Lewis, um, or I work with um, another teacher, Shelly Levin at Forest Ridge, which is another girls' middle school in, in Bellevue. So I'm always like reiterating. Yeah. And the one that I think I'm most proud of is the energy unit for 8th grade science. My first year teaching, I didn't I had nothing when I started because the teacher I replaced like didn't write anything down. Okay. Which is great as a first year teacher yeah, I can to imagine. not have any resources except for a textbook, <laughs> which wasn't how I was taught how to teach. I started this energy unit and the kids with my like sent my phenomena, which was what why does a balloon shrink when you put it in the freezer? The kids were like, We did this last year. <laughs> this exact thing. Yeah. And I just like turned to the whiteboard and like cried, you know, and then like wiped the tears and like turned back and I was like, Cool. <laughs> it's not like I spent my whole weekend writing this unit. Yeah. And, like, had to shift gears. And I was like, can you guys, like, do a little bit of it again? Like, I don't know what to do. But, like, we ha- I, I literally have no flexibility because I am just learning how to teach. Yeah. The next year, Dakota Access Pipeline was happening. Mm. And I was like, energy, yes! This is energy, social justice, everything's coming together. And we did... Like, I created a role-play debate, and we talked about different forms of energy, and it was so awesome, and it was way too heavy for these kids. Yeah. And I got a lot of feedback from them on that. So I kind of, like, on the, like, social justice and STEM Scale, I like went way too far, so I had to like recalibrate. And the current unit that I'm doing is centered around: Does a hydroelectric dam create clean energy? And the clean is in quotations. And that unit, like first of all, I studied science, technology, and society was my major, and so this idea of technology interacting with science and mm-hmm. politics and Geology, like all the, it's so interdisciplinary. We learn about, you know, kinetic energy, potential energy, different forms of energy. And then we talk about the Elwha Dam in Olympic National Park that the lower column tribe, like grassroots organized with a 
ton of other people to remove the dam and restore the ecosystem. And so we have the National Park Service made a role play debate for that dam. Mm-hmm. It's a happy story, unlike the Dakota Access Pipeline, <laughs> which is not, um, unfortunately. Uh, and so kids can learn about a success story that happened here, but then also start asking hard questions about how they feel about technology and energy and renewable resources. And like a lot of them right now, we just started the unit and they're like, yay, renewable resources are the best. I'm like, ooh, can't wait to like challenge, (laughs) give you things that make you go, huh? Yeah. Like, do I really think that? And so we have a lot of opportunities. We also work with the humanities teacher. And so she comes in and they're learning about history of fishing rights and colonization in Washington state and like who are the tribes that are here. So it's a, that's one I'm most proud of mostly because, um, you've come so far, I've come so far and like nobody cries bad tears anymore. (laughs) That was actually a thing that when Lewis and I were talking about like how much social justice is too much, mm-hmm. how, where do you draw the line between depressing your students horribly, but opening their eyes up to something in the world, but also giving mm-hmm. them hope and understanding, and especially to a really vulnerable age. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that is the question that our school is constantly asking. And I think we just have to keep asking. Teaching social justice curriculum doesn't have to be like the Dakota Access Pipeline. I think that's a big thing that I've learned. It can, it can be little. Yeah. As in like, hmm, what terms are we going to use? Because the texts use mom and dad for our genetics resources, but like look at our classroom a lot of you came into your families not in that way yeah and that's not a big heavy conversation it's like just a little moment that we can kind of shift how inclusive we can be in this stem world yeah i more and more my own personal philosophy is is less about the big special lesson and more about just living your own values in a space, mm-hmm. sharing those, but not expecting students to agree with you, but to teach them how to respect. Mm-hmm. And then just modeling constantly the things that are important to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's like, I, it's something that I really, though, that am I doing enough? Is it just issue-based? Is it, or is it curriculum like, how am I getting my students in the classroom? Like, how are they seeing themselves in the curriculum? I think also is social justice. Yeah. And so when you're looking, for instance, at medical technology, and there's obviously the backstory of, like, the Tuskegee syphilis mm-hmm. experiments or Henrietta Lacks, mm-hmm. is that something that your students connect with, do you find? Or is it just one more thing to highlight how injustice has prevailed. The Henrietta Lacks story I've actually taught, and that's a great one for middle school because they love fairness. Mm. And they were like, they took her cells without asking. (laughs) Like, whoa, that is not 
fair. Like, we need to figure this out. Like, yeah. not acceptable. So middle school loves fair, yeah. not fair. Um, similar to preschool. Like, there's some similarities <laughs> here. And, and then also the Henrietta Lacks story, because the author of the book kind of reconnected the family with, like, there's some cool like allyship and there's some other interesting parts of that story that make it like I will never teach Tuskegee to middle schoolers yeah like it is really terrible and heavy (laughs) so Henrietta Lacks has some hope I think which is a critical piece we that we have kind of landed on as a school of like as we're talking about all these terrible things in the world like where where can we talk about people who were helpers or supporting or acting like doing something to be helpful during that time how I know that something that a lot of teachers deal with is that guilt because there's always something a little bit more that we could be doing and how dare we be reading this book when there's lab reports how how do you manage that and do you have any skills or techniques you could share with anybody that is what I think I struggle with the most is feeling like I'm not doing a good enough job and that is a like big question for therapy and (laughs) a lot of things so um but Something that I've started doing this year that's been really helpful is journaling at the end of every day, something joyful that happened, and then at the end of every week, collecting a list of things that, a short list, things that went well that I helped do well, Mm. like what my role was in that. And then I have a very tiny little box for challenging moments. <laughs> so I like can still talk about them, yeah. but they take up less space. And I got that idea from Elena Aguilar, um, who wrote The Art of Coaching. But then she just wrote a book this past year about teacher resilience. Mm. And so thinking about if I'm going to do this six years from now or 20 years from now, I need to figure out how I can deal with that feeling of not feeling good enough because I am doing, I am good enough. I also like reading Michelle Obama's book, Becoming at the same time. I was like, bring it on. Like I am enough. I can do this. Um, and, and then like looping in people who, tell you that you're doing a good job like one of my teaching mentors here just writes the nicest emails or like tells me like what a cool thing that you're their teacher I went to see an acupuncturist yesterday ironically not having work fill up my time I'm doing more self-care and so we were going through like headache history and she was like well what were you doing to manage that and I was like what does this manage mean? <laughs> yeah, so I would just power through till the marking was done and yeah. then go lie in a dark room. I don't understand yeah. this helping myself mm-hmm. mystery you're going on about. Mm-hmm. I go to yoga once a week with a friend or, you know, building in those, how am I managing my health and my well-being emotionally and physically? Like That's a, a big question for teachers. Yeah that it feels bad to ask and that's the biggest thing that Elena Aguilar is like hello if you are not managing yourself how are you expecting to manage little humans yeah 
it's just not possible. And then going back to the values, Mm -hmm. but like sharing and modeling for the kids so that we don't have another generation of people that are just so overwhelmed. Yeah. It's especially with girls. That is a real thing. Yeah. If you had unlimited school funds, if I had a lifelong teaching coach, yeah, that would be amazing. And if everyone had that, yeah, like athletes have a lifelong coach for this practice that they have. A lot of people have like mentors in their positions, but once you like learn how to teach, they're like, good luck. <laughs> join a PLC. And you're yeah. like, no, <laughs> I will join a PLC, but I want yeah. somebody in the classroom with me, giving me feedback. So there you have it. Christine Primomo on why you want to journal the good you do, hack a robot, not a hairdryer, and write an email to a colleague reminding them that they're doing a great job. I mean it though, you should totally do that. It would make their day. If you'd like to find out more about what teachers in Canada and the US are doing to transform education, please head to my new website, lessonimpossible.com. And if you like the podcast, please forward it to your friends and colleagues, as well as rating and reviewing it on iTunes. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.